You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. If you've got your Bible, let's go ahead and open up to James chapter 5. Uh, we'll be in uh, verses 13 through 16 there. Today we're going to be taking a break, kind of a more extended break even, uh, from the Gospel of John and continuing our series on one another's. So today is going to be pray for one another. That's one of the one another's that we see in Scripture, one of the commands that God gives to his people that they are to do amongst each other as the body of Christ, as the church. So pray for one another is where we're going to be today. So back in January, um, we talked about how to pray during our spiritual discipline series. If you haven't listened to that, that's going to be kind of a background to where we're at today. But today I want to personalize prayer a bit more and talk about what it looks like in community. I don't want to talk about just how to pray. I want to talk about what prayer looks like amongst God's people. So I want to read the text and then we'll pray and then we'll see where the Lord takes us over these next few minutes. So James chapter 5 verses 13 through 16 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Your scripture is a hallmark of this church that we live and breathe and preach and proclaim scripture in all that we do. And I pray that this morning you would proclaim your word mightily through me. I pray that we would celebrate what you would have to say. I pray that we would embrace it and that we would pray for each other fervently and faithfully and for your glory. So I ask that you would send the spirit to be mighty in this time to illuminate the text, to teach us, to rebuke us, to lead us, to comfort us. And to pray that it would be for the glory of your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you're taking notes, we'll break this text down into three different sections. So the idea is pray for one another. That's the main thing that we're, we're going to be working on today. So the first couple of verses, verses 13 and 14, we'll talk about pray in all seasons. The second section is pray with faith in verse 15. And then the last verse, verse 16, is pray for one another. We'll also deal with 17 and 18, but that'll be toward the end. That'll, that'll be the kind of conclusion as we work through this. So the first point we're going to make for today and how to pray for one another is that we pray in all seasons, verses 13 and 14. Let's read 13 here. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So is anyone suffering? That's the first half of verse 13. The very first thing here. Um, if, if we're suffering, if we're talking about internal or external hardship, any and all kinds of suffering. This is kind of a junk drawer term in Greek here. If we're, if we're suffering, if there's, um, if, if there's something really pressing in on us that's hard for us to work through, that we're considering difficulty, that's what we're talking about here, suffering. So when we're suffering, in such times of suffering, there's a real temptation to grumble or to get angry, to get discouraged or depressed. I certainly am that way. But the proper Christian response the way that the God's people should respond to suffering is prayer. And that, that term pray, prosukomai, is the most common word for prayer in the New Testament. 
This idea is communication with the Lord. We defined that well back in January, but it's communication with the Lord, talking to him, but also hearing from him, communicating with the Lord, relating to him. This means that you're going to need to know the Lord. It's very difficult to talk to somebody that you don't know. So get to know him. Read his scriptures. Get to know him and pray to him. And when you're suffering, you'll find an advocate, you'll find a welcome ear, you'll find a God who loves to hear you and who responds to you. This also mirrors Jesus' prayer when he suffered. If you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified, and he was distraught about his impending torture and death. And what did he do? He prayed. He also prayed while he was on the cross, crying out to God. And if there's any time of suffering in all of Scripture, it is definitely Jesus on the cross, suffering for the sins of his people. So if we're suffering, if we are Christians, if we are to be like our Jesus, we should pray when we suffer. Verse 13, the second half of verse 13, it says, Is anyone cheerful? We're then to sing praises. This is the flip side of suffering, right? This is an internal disposition. It's not just external things. It's not just, um, this is the, this is not just, um, good things happening around you. This is you're feeling good. You're feeling joyful. You're feeling, feeling cheerful. And then we're to sing praises. So be thankful. Christian, be thankful when life is going well for you. Ecclesiastes encourages us to enjoy life while it is here because it will soon fade away. And throughout Psalms, we see calls to praise the Lord, to remember his goodness, to celebrate what he's doing amongst his people. So if you feel joy, if you feel happiness, if you feel cheer, if you're feeling like a cheerful person, you feel like good things are going on in your life, then sing praises. Respond to the Lord in that way. Pour that back out to him in praise. Don't just let it sit in you. Don't let you, the only thing that comes out of your mouth be complaining. Celebrate goodness as well. And that's, that's for us as a people. Celebrate good things amongst each other as a people. That's what we need to be as Redeemer, as Christians in Springfield, Missouri. We need to be cheerful with each other. And we need to sing praises with each other. Moving on to verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So call the elders. That's likely because they're too sick to leave home. This is a very sick person. This is not just somebody with the sniffles or like I have a sinus infection right now. It's not, this, this is not talking about that. This is talking about somebody who cannot get out of their own bed. This is a dire situation, not a normal everyday sickness. We also see that James assumes a plurality of elders. He assumes that there's going to be multiple elders who can respond, who will pray over somebody. In the second half of verse 14, it says that the elders will pray over him and anoint him in the name of the Lord. So again, indicating this person's bedroom, pray over them. Not pray with them, not pray alongside them, but pray over them. That kind of indicates that they're bedridden, right? And then they'll anoint. Most likely that's a symbolic representation of asking for the Spirit's miraculous healing power. Some people say it may be medicinal, like using essential oils, or sacramental, like using holy water, like we see in the Catholic Church and other places. But the purpose of the anointing here, I've kind of done some research on it, it's kind of ambiguous but it's clearly done alongside prayer. And we shouldn't take our eyes off of the main point here. Let's not make the point about oil or about anointing or what we need to be doing there. The main point is to pray in the name of the Lord because that makes it clear that it is God who heals, not the oil. This means that believers are to call out in faith to the Lord to heal. 
So the point here is that no matter how you're feeling, whether you're in a painful season or a joyful season or anywhere in between, you should take it to the Lord. You should pray in all seasons. Do you pray in all seasons? Are there certain times that are easier for you to pray than others? Certain times that are easier for you to communicate with the Lord or do you shut him out when you feel pain? Or do you shut him out when you feel joy and you think it's all because of things that you've done? You've worked hard at work. You've worked hard on your marriage. You've worked hard with your kids. If you've worked to enjoy this vacation or whatever it is that's going on, do you feel the need to just ignore the Lord when things are going well? Or do you shut him out when things hurt? Do you pray in any season? Do you pray at all? If you struggle with prayer, that's okay. But it's not okay to stay there. If you are not, if you are a Christian, if you claim the name of Christ, if you struggle with prayer, that's okay. But don't stay there. Grow in it. Be discipled. Ask for help. And make sure that you mature in your faith. There's a good pattern that I think I brought up last time I preached on on uh, prayer. The good pattern is acts. It's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So when we pray, if you need help praying, if you don't know how to pray, do this. First thing you do is, is adoration. You adore the Lord. You praise the Lord for who he is and what he's done. And then you confess, airing out your sin before the Lord and admitting your neediness of him. That's, you, that's how you confess things. Then thanksgiving, Thanking him for providing for you and what he's blessed you with. Be thankful for what the Lord has given you. And then finally, supplication. Asking him to do certain things, to respond in certain ways, to to meet you somewhere. So acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. That's a very easy way to think through prayer if you are struggling with it, if you need some help there. Also, you can pray scripture. You go open your Bible, read something in the Bible, and then respond in prayer. See what, the, see what it says about God, and then you pray those things back to him. So if you read, say, for example, Genesis 1 and 2, you see that God is creator. Thank God for creating everything and for creating you. If you read like Isaiah 6, there's this vision of the Lord who is holy, who's on his throne, this beautiful picture of God in his holiness. You can acknowledge his holiness and your lack thereof. And you can respond to him in that way. It's very simple, straightforward ways of praying. If you, read the, if you read the book of Luke, you can understand that Jesus is our Savior. That's a major theme throughout the book of Luke. So praise Jesus for saving you and for saving other people. There's lots of different ways that you can work through this in practical aspect. But the point, the, the, the major aspect of prayer is that when we pray in all seasons, when we pray in good times and bad times, when we're suffering, when we feel good, when we, all those different seasons, we are coming in line with God's will. Submission to God's will should be the foundation of every Christian prayer. And we do this without demanding. We don't demand anything of God. We submit our requests to him and he does with them what he will. But it's not my will be done, but thy will be done. Like Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is is instructed that we pray, not my will, but thy will be done. And so when we pray, we are doing two things. Number one, we're expressing our neediness for the Lord because we can't do life without him. And then number two, we're confessing our faith in the Lord, that we know he is good and he is faithful to respond. So sometimes that means that we don't pray for the suffering to cease, but rather we pray for grace and endurance in the storm. 
That kind of throws back to James chapter 1. If you're familiar with James, the first chapter says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So when we pray, we come in line with the Lord's will, and we can count trials and sufferings as joy. And God deserves and desires our prayers and praise in all seasons. He's worthy of it. So whether we're suffering or whether we're happy, no matter what our life is like, God is worthy of our worship and our praise. He's worthy regardless of what's going on in our lives. So as we pray for one another, we pray in all seasons. And then the second thing that we see here in verse 15 is that we pray with faith. So verse 15 says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So this idea of prayer of faith, there's a different word here for prayer. It's not prosukomai, it's UK. It's a strong wish or petition. It's something that you really, really, really want. It's highlighting the desire behind the prayer. So praying for something that you really hope will happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And of course, Hebrews 11 tells us that the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen is faith. So when you pray with an assurance of something hoped for and a conviction of something unseen, that is by definition a prayer of faith. So we should pray with that strong feeling of hope and desire. That is a faithful prayer. And the faith we're talking about, this prayer of faith, is of those who are praying, not the sick person, not the person who's being prayed over. There's no evidence here indicating a sick person's faith is the focus here. The passage has been, this passage has been twisted to support all kinds of faith healings, like if you just have enough faith, you'll be healed. And quite frankly, that is flat wrong. And it's wicked. And the people who profit off of such teachings are wolves. So we, Christians, we pray in faith for those who are sick. And then this prayer, the, second, the first half of verse 15, this prayer will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. This idea of will save, there's kind of this possible double meaning here. Maybe it's heal sickness. There's, there's this idea of being saved from being sick, but there's also maybe experiencing salvation of being saved in a salvific sense, being coming into the kingdom of the Lord. And there's this other kind of term of raise him up. It could mean restoration. It could also mean the resurrection. There's kind of some ambiguity there. But the lo- most likely meaning, that kind of as I've, as I've read through some of these things, the most likely meaning is healing sickness. But the point here is that healing, if and when it does come, is always a gift of God. The Lord is the one who does the raising up. He is the one who does the healing. And here's where we kind of have to I don't know if you're like me, you kind of start asking some questions. Because the Lord doesn't always heal believers. I've lost a couple of parent, grandparents to cancer. I've seen friends die. I've seen faithful members, faithful friends and family die over the years. The Lord doesn't always heal believers. He doesn't always answer that prayer. So we don't always get to see people get well again. But if we kind of understand what this passage is saying here, the beautiful hope in Christ is that no matter what happens in this life, whether we experience sickness or whether we experience healing, we have a new life awaiting us in heaven. And the second half of verse 15 says, if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven. So they see this, this may, um, I, don't know, I don't know if this will mess with your worldview at all, but if we look biblically at sickness, and at this world, and at sin. All sickness is the result of living in a broken world. 
Sickness did not exist before the fall. Sinus infections didn't exist before the fall, praise the Lord. Sickness is one of the effects of sin. It's one of the effects of creation warring against itself, right? We need to be careful here. This, this, if he has committed sins, we see that James is saying that some sickness is not tied directly to sin. So cold, flu, migraines, broken bones, arthritis, those, those are things that happen. Those are, that's, that is sickness, but it's not the direct result to sin. But it also implies, this text here, if he's committed sins, this implies that some sickness is a direct result of sin. So if you have liver failure from being enslaved to alcohol, if you have STDs from sexual sin, if you have lots of health issues from eating disorders, eating too much or too little, if you have hypertension from excessive sinful worry, those are physical things. Those are sicknesses that are linked to sins. In 1 Corinthians 11.30, we talk about this every week, uh, several times, or we pretty much, pretty regularly, I should say, several times a month. We talk about 1 Corinthians 11.30, mentioned the warning against people sinfully approaching communion because that's the cause of sickness for some people. That they, some, because they've approached the table of the Lord improperly, that's why they're sick or dying. We also see Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 were killed by the Lord because they lied, because they sinned. They were struck down right in the middle of the church service. So there are some sins that result in sickness. And if the person being prayed for confesses those sins, they will be forgiven. But let's not lose sight of the main point here. Praying with faith comes with real world effects. And we cannot deny those effects because somebody else does it wrong or weird. Just because faith healers on TV are generally frauds, um, we, we, we can know that the Lord God of heaven heals people and forgives sins when we pray for them. That is the main point here. So let's pray with faith. Let's be a people, a church, who prays with faith. But if we're going to be a people of faith, who pray with faith, what does that look like? We start on this by outlining two things that faithful prayer is not, that, are, that we see fairly commonly here in this area of the country. In more charismatic circles, you'll find one kind of error. Faithful prayer is not this idea of name it, claim it, thanking God for already doing things that you want him to do. That is not a faithful prayer. It is not self-sufficient. It's not treating God like your personal genie who's just waiting for you to ask so he can bless your socks off. That is not what we're talking about when we say faithful prayer. But on the other hand, if we're going down the road and we're going to stay in the middle, if we see these two ditches, that's one ditch, there's another one on the other side. On the other hand, in more Reformed or Baptistic circles, you find another kind of error. That faithful prayer is not this nebulous bowing down before the Lord and, ask, and not asking for anything in particular. Faithful prayer does not give God outs or excuses. Lord, please heal this person, but if you don't, then you give us peace. In the, in, if the, it, you're giving God outs. That's not a faithful prayer. Faithful prayer doesn't have a reserve parachute. It doesn't have a plan B. Faithful prayer goes out on a limb and asks for specific things in the name of Christ. Faithful prayer is bold and confident, but in the Lord, not in ourselves. Faithful prayer dreams big and knows the Lord is the God of heaven and earth who does amazing things, that he loves his children and he listens to them and he responds. That is what the basis of faithful prayer is. Faithful prayer also understands that God knows best. And so with every big ask, 
with everything we express toward the Lord when we pray, not our will, but your will. It is faithful submission to the Lord. And we can see these ideas at work earlier in James. In chapter 1, we see that we are to ask in faith. And in chapter 4, we see that we don't have because we don't ask. And if we, don't ask, if we, if we do ask and we don't get things, it's, it's because we ask with impure motives. Because we're asking selfishly, not for the glory of the Lord and for the good of his people. So, brothers and sisters, let's pray with faith as we pray in all seasons. Let's pray faithfully. And then verse 16, we see we pray for one another. First half of verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So therefore, it's, now we're getting to the point of this passage. Now we're getting into the meat of it. Everything up to now has been kind of background, right? So we see confess and pray for one another for healing. Sometimes confession is needed before healing can take place. Sin can be the cause of illness, like we talked about, 1 Corinthians 11. And we see the public sins and secret sins need to be confessed and addressed. We see that addictions and debilitating sins may need help from fellow Christians. They may need, they may, they may need help counseling. They may need accountability and discipleship. So we need to confess those sins before healing can take place. James's instruction is that we would confess our sins that may be hindering healing. It's one thing to pray for somebody to recover from their lung transplant surgery. But if they pick up their smoking habit again, they need to confess and repent and see some life change as we pray for them. If someone is hiding a sin and not addressing it, they're missing out on the help of the body and they're missing out on growing their relationship with the Lord, not to mention grieving the Holy Spirit who dwells in them. So James says that we should pray for one another, not just the elders, but everyone. The point here is that we pray with other Christians, not just alone. It's good to pray alone. It's good. We need to be, find that time where we pray and commune with the Lord on our own. But this is talking about prayer in, in a community context. We pray with other Christians. And that's for several different reasons. There's, the first one is that this invites the community into our struggles. Hey, I'm, I'm wrestling with something here. I really need some help. Would you pray with me? Pray for me in this. It also promotes accountability and sharpening. If I ask you to pray for me, or if you ask me to pray for you, maybe we should talk about that at a time later, later on in the road. Like, hey, how is that thing that we prayed about last week? That sin that you were dealing with, how is that? How can I help you? Where's some books that you can read? How are some resources? Where's some scripture that we can work through together? How can we pray for and sharpen and hold each other accountable as we wrestle with sin? So it invites community into the struggle. It also promotes accountability and sharpening. And ultimately, when we pray for one another, ultimately the body is strengthened by praying for and with one another. So brothers and sisters, let's pray for one another. It's good to give advice, and it's good to think through things. Those are my defaults. My, my default is not, let me pray for you. My default is, here's a good book. And you know that because I've bought you a lot of books, right? But those are my defaults. My, my default is to give you advice. But let's be a prayerful people. Let's, be, let's let our default be prayer. Let's let our default be submission to the Lord and saying, Lord, please give us guidance here. Give us wisdom. Let's run to prayer like we run to Scripture. Let's seek the face of the Lord in prayer like we search Scripture. Because our prayers are powerful. 
Not because we're powerful. We are dust. But because our God is powerful. He is the one who listens to our prayers and he answers them. He intended for us to grow together by praying for each other and by experiencing our ever-changing lives together. Therefore, we should pray for one another. And if we're going to pray for one another, and if we're going to pray with faith, and if we're going to pray in all seasons, then we're going to have to be vulnerable and let people in. We're going to have to expose some darkness and work through some deep wounds. It's going to have to happen. We're also going to have to be bold and press in before people ask us to come in. And we need to be careful with that, need to be gracious and gentle with that, but we need to be confident in the Lord and saying, I see some junk in your life. I see some sin in your life. I see some pain and suffering in your life, and I want to pray with you for it. I want to pray with you about that. I'm not going to wait for you to ask me. I want to press in and commune with you and the Lord together. We ask prudent questions. We pursue each other for the good of the body. We're also going to have to really know each other, not just our stories and what you can find out on a social media profile, but really know how we think and how we respond, how we work together as a body for the glory of God. Let's get to know this body that God is creating and forming and shaping for his glory. In the same way that it's difficult to pray to God if we don't know him, it's very difficult to pray for one another in a meaningful way if we don't know each other. I can only pray generally if I don't know you. But if you open up to me, if I open up to you, we know each other's context, we know each other's history and what we're dealing with, we know the the movement on each other's hearts, then we can really pray in a deep way, in an informed way, in a specific way, and in a faithful, big way. We see in the second half of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. There's this third word for prayer now in the text. So prosukamai and then UK, and then now we see deasis, or deasis, I don't know, somebody can help me with that, but there's a third word for prayer here. It's talking about, it's focusing specifically on the petition itself. Not just praying about various things, but specifically asking the Lord for something. There's an alternate translation here. It's um, the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. So those who walk closely with the Lord can expect to see a powerful response to their prayers. And we see that prayer is powerful because of the God who hears and who answers. There's an illustration here, the last couple of verses, in verses 17 and 18, about Elijah praying for a drought and rain. And I want to get into that, but I want to give you some background. I want to tell you the story surrounding this because James kind of gives us a shorthand of it. So this background, in 1 Kings 17 and 18, I know you've all read that recently. In 1 Kings 17 and 18, Elijah is a prophet who's ministering in Israel. There's this wicked king named Ahab, and he's on the throne in 1 Kings 16.33. We see that he, quote-unquote, did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now that is quite an accomplishment, because if you've read through 1 Kings, you will see that the, what the Lord is talking about. There's some pretty messed up stuff going on in there. But in the opening verses of chapter 17, Elijah tells Ahab that because of his wickedness, there's going to be a drought. And then Elijah just rolls out. He just punches out. He's like, I'm going to tell you right now, there's no rain for three, for like a long time, and I'm going to roll out and see what happens. He follows the Lord and he stays with this widow who doesn't have a whole lot at all. She has just a handful of flour in a pot and a little bit of oil in a jar. And her plan is to make this one last cake for her and her son 
they're going to eat it, and then they're going to starve to death. That is her plan. That's all she's got. She's down to like nothing else. But while Elijah is there with her, her flour and her oil don't run out. She continues to feed them miraculously, beautifully. And then we see in 1 Kings 17, 16, it says, The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So Elijah, by prayer, sees this miracle happen. Then the widow's son gets sick, and he's at the point of death. And then Elijah prays for the boy, and he's revived. And then Elijah goes back to confront Ahab. He sets up a contest of sorts between Ahab's prophets of Baal and the Lord. They set up altars with with a sacrifice on top and basically pray to their respective gods to call down fire from heaven and consume the sacrifices. So the prophets of Baal do all kinds of things to get Baal to do his thing, to call down this fire from heaven, but it doesn't work. So Elijah taunts them. It's actually pretty funny. I'll let you go read it yourself. But just to make it more interesting, when when it comes to Elijah's turn, Elijah has his altar soaked with 12 big jars of water to the point that it's overflowing and fills up a trench around his altar. And then we see, here's what happens in 1 Kings 18, verses 36 to 39. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and the Lord and, and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then after this, Elijah starts praying again and it starts raining. What a fantastic story. And to quote the great theologian Han Solo from Star Wars The Force Awakens, it's true. The drought, the flower, the oil, the healing of the boy, the fire from heaven, all of it. It's true. And this is what James uses as his illustration for powerful prayer. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Then we go into verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and gave rain, and, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So James is saying here that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. How can James say this? We're nothing like Elijah. He was seeing miracles on the daily, and we're just trying to pay our mortgages and feed our kids. James can say this because the power didn't reside in Elijah. The power was God's all along. It's not as though Elijah possessed some strange hidden knowledge of God. He followed the Lord faithfully and he prayed and the Lord worked miracles. So do we pray as though the God of heaven has bent his ear and and hears us when we pray? Do we pray with reverent awe? Or are we bored and searching for what to say because we need to fill the time? If God has saved us, if he's brought us into his kingdom, if he's guaranteed our inheritance in eternity, and if he's put his spirit in us who helps us to pray even when we don't have the words, maybe, just maybe, he intends to communicate with us. And maybe we should communicate back with him.
Do we pray as though our prayers are powerful? They're powerful in a couple of different ways. They're powerful in the moment when we pray for somebody. Through prayer, God can bring immediate relief to stress or anxiety. He can remove pain or illness. He can provide answers very quickly. So if someone asks you to pray for them, go ahead and do it right then, right there. Your prayer is never wasted. And it can have powerful effects in that moment. But our prayers are not only effective in the moment. They're also, prayer, they're also powerful in a long-term sense as well. Through prayer, God can bring about major changes over seasons and years and decades. This is why when I preached about prayer uh, earlier this year, I talked about prayer journals. That's why they're important. That's why I love my prayer journal, because I can look back and see how seasons and things change over the long term. And praying for lost people by name for months or years is a powerful thing. Praying for big things is a great discipline. And through long-term prayers, God can transform your world. If you feel the need to pray for something, write it down and keep praying for it until you have an answer from the Lord. What would happen if we prayed big prayers? I think a lot of times, especially in conservative Baptist churches, we, we hedge our bets with our prayers. We don't, we don't really dream big in that sense. We pray for the Lord to do big things, but we get more vague with what we ask for, and we add lots of qualifiers like, Lord, please heal this person, but if you don't, give us the wisdom to understand why you didn't. And glorify yourself either way, whether your answer is yes or no, we'll know you'll get the glory. I think, I mean, I'm not going to tell you the prayer is wrong, but like, it's pretty anemic. What would happen in Redeemer Church if we were to dream big and pray big? I'm not talking about turning Redeemer into a mega church or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about looking beyond a budget and a building that, quite frankly, needs a lot of help, especially getting the air conditioner in the hallway installed. What if we prayed for God to move in our marriages and our children and in our workplaces? What if we prayed for God to save people and they came to us needing to be discipled? What if we prayed to be the ones to go win some souls? See, praying big and dreaming big means we need to let go of what we want or what we expect, and it means that we open ourselves up to what the Lord will do. We might expect the flour and oil to run out. We might expect the young boy to die. We might expect the sacrifice to continue soaking. But God doesn't. God expects his glory. He expects us to follow him by faith and not by sight. I was told this over a decade ago by a very godly man. He said, abandoning yourself to God doesn't look like the status quo. Abandoning yourself to God does not look like the status quo. What he meant is that you cannot step out in faith and keep doing what you've been doing. You need to be open to change. And sometimes that change is hard, like with repentance or extending forgiveness. But it is always worth it in the end. What would happen if God answered our big prayers? What would our world look like? What would our church look like? What would our city look like if God answered our big prayers? Here's a question I've been, here's a really convicting question I've been wrestling with for a few months now. What in my life would really change if God answered my prayers? If, if, I got, if God 
answered my prayers and gave me what I was praying for, what, what would really change? And then that changed the way that I prayed. It changed the trajectory of my life because God answered our prayers by a series of providences and now, Lord willing, we're moving to Texas in a month. That's what happens when you pray and when you're open to following the Lord in very big, scary ways. Elijah's prayers changed the seasons. He prayed and it didn't rain for several years, and then he prayed again and it started raining again. And his prayers had a huge effect on that region. I've lived in a series, in a long drought in my hometown of Abilene, Texas. We had a drought for like seven or eight years when I was in middle school, high school, and beyond. Like a long, long time with, it wasn't like a complete drought, but we had this pond on my ranch, or a tank, we call them tanks in Texas, but we had this, um, this tank that was like 10 acres, and it shrunk down to like nothing, to like just a few feet across. So a three-year, six-month drought can have a huge effect on a region. But just like Elijah's prayers change the seasons, your prayers can change the seasons as well. They can turn seasons of suffering into times of sweet communion with the Lord. They can turn seasons of happiness into sweet, song-filled celebrations with brothers and sisters in Christ. They can turn seasons of sickness into encouraging times of prayer with the elders. Your prayers can bring light, can bring to light sins and also the Lord's forgiveness. Your prayers can have great power, not because of the strength of the prayer or the strength of your faith, but because of the power and the faithfulness of the Lord, the God who reigns over heaven and earth, who sees, who hears, who responds, and who works all things for his glory and for the good of his people. We've been talking a lot about faithful prayer today. But one question I haven't addressed is, faith in whom? Faith in what? So hear me clearly. The Lord hears our prayers only because of Jesus' faithfulness. He came as the Word of God incarnate in the flesh. He lived a perfect sinless life and He died a horrific death on the cross. He lived a faithful life here on earth and He was resurrected by the Father. He ascended into heaven where He currently ministers on our behalf praying for us, interceding for us. And that is why we pray in the name of Christ. It's only because of his faithfulness that we have an audience with God. So then our faith in Jesus is a gift of God and is the basis of our salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. Do you know this? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? If so, then all of what I've talked about today, or at least most of it, should make sense. But if not, if you don't know this, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, then let's talk about it and pray together during the time of response here in just a few minutes. Redeemer, let's pray in all seasons. Whether we're suffering, or whether we're cheerful, or whether we're sick, let's pray. Let's pray with faithful expectation because the God of heaven and earth hears and answers us. And let's pray for one another as disciples of Jesus in life together, shaping each other. Let's pray.